Hello everyone and welcome back to Newswire Talks, our weekly news talk show that gives you the lowdown on everything that's happening in DCU at the moment and also nationally. Up first is our DCU news. DCUSU has delayed the USI disaffiliation referendum and Newbar Couch is yet to be returned after being stolen. And in the national press, our student literacy rates on a steady decline. Theresa May says an extension will only de- delay Brexit decisions. The USI condemns delayed tenancies legislation. And finally, Metrolink plans need to coexist with Dublin communities. But first, we have our hourly news, news bulletin. A young girl who was seriously injured in a boating accident at the weekend is a very good-natured kind child, her school principal said today. The girl was one of four girls and a boy who were on board a rowing boat that capsized on a stretch of the River Shannon. All five were part of a group from Athlochtand Boat Club which headed out in the river sometime around 9am. A Silicon Valley-based high-tech company is to develop a new research and development centre in Northern Ireland which is expected to create 150 jobs. The firm specialises in protecting businesses from online fraud. Signified, which was founded by former PayPal and FedEx employees, said the company's first investment in Northern Ireland will help expand its European operations. According to Raj Ramanad, co-founder and chief executive of the US company, it had explored a number of potential investment locations before deciding on Belfast. British Prime Minister Theresa May has given a statement on what the options are in delivering Brexit from an Arab-EU summit in Egypt. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar met with the Prime Minister earlier this morning. And finally, Mumford & Sons have announced a concert at Dublin's Malahide Castle next summer. The UK folk rockers will join Norway's Aurora and local Axe Wild Youth and Dermot Kennedy in the Gentlemen of the Road gig on Friday, June 14th. Tickets go on sale Friday, March 1st, starting from 69.75. That's been your news for now. Keep up to date with us on Facebook and Twitter at DCUMPS News. So at the moment, um, kind of, you know, in DCU, everything we are seeing everywhere, and I mean, it's going to be absolutely saturated tomorrow, is the elections. And we know that every year, uh, usually now, um, with the SU elections, so I mean, for anyone listening who is unsure of uh, what we mean here, you know, every college has a students' union, um, and in DCU we have five sabbatical officers, so it is their full-time job um, to look after students and that kind of thing. But every single year, um, usually, anyway, um, along with the SU elections, I mean, usually comes at least one referendum, doesn't there? Yeah. I think last year um, it, we saw uh, the abortion referendum, seeing what DCU's stance was on that. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, the year before that was the United Ireland? Um, that was last year that as well. That was last yeah. year as well. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it? Okay, so they were, they were the ones last year. Um, and then this year we have uh, three referendums coming up, possibly a fourth. Um, and the fourth one is basically that um, should DCU uh, Students Union uh, disaffiliate with the USI Uh, so currently uh, DCU is affiliated with the USI which is the Union of Students in Ireland and um, we get you know the aim is to get support from them and kind of matters and big matters and they're kind of you know the next level up for every college 
um, and it costs a fee for um, the college out of students' student levy uh, to go towards that. Um, so basically, uh, DCU, um, DCU's current students' union, um, they wanted to uh, do a referendum asking students if uh, we should disaffiliate uh, with uh, the USI or not. Um, however, um, a lot of societies weren't happy with this, a lot of just students in general weren't happy with this and uh, didn't feel like um, students' input was taken. Um, it usually costs um, 400, let me just double check now, it's 425 signatures are required uh, for a referendum uh, to be passed, to be asked to um, students in DCU um, and that quota was not obtained. So um, tonight there is going to be an emergency uh, class rep meeting uh, where I presume that they are going to to decide this. Um, there hasn't been too much talk about it in DCU press, but Trinity News did an article on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just kind of highlighting that there wasn't really much communication between the SU sabbaticals and the actual students of DCU and I think that's originally why a petition was kind of circulating to bring um, to bring forth an emergency class rep council on this issue and it kind of raises the question of whether this emergency class rep council would have happened if students hadn't kind of shown that they weren't happy about this in the first place. I think it's it's not even really an opinion. It's yeah, it, it wouldn't be. Yeah. Um. I mean, it, it, according to the minutes of the DCUSU executive meeting, which was on um, February seventh, um, the five the five people who are who are on the students' union who are um, a part of the sabbatical team, um, they decided to bring um, the referendum forward. Um. So just to give some context, the referendum, we last had a referendum on whether we would, whether or not DCU would stay affiliated with the USI in 2016. That wasn't due to come back up again for a referendum until next year. The five sabbatical op officers kind of took it into their own hands to push for this referendum. So the 425 signatures that they were required to get on a petition were they only brought that to the executive board of DCU. Generally speaking, with a referendum like this, it's not the sabbatical officers that push for a referendum. It usually comes from class rep council, mm -hmm. which is coming from the students. So it's extremely unusual for our sabbaticals to be pushing for a referendum in the first place. It came out that they were looking to disaffiliate from the USI before it was ever brought to the attention of the class rep council. So the major issue is that they haven't consulted with student bodies. They haven't reached the number of signatures that were necessary on the petition. And now they're having to backtrack, go back to the class rep councils and start a petition up again, which will inevitably push the referendum forward. And it is very unlikely at this point that that referendum will take place in conjunction with the elections next week. I think it's also very important to note that the whole student council or student union they weren't all in agreement with this actually going through and that um, the president of the SU he had the deciding vote in the end and um, that brought this issue to um, 
to the forefront. And um, it's very interesting also that this article in Trinity News notes that um, there was previously a lack of attendance and engagement from the DCUSU president at any sort of USI events and national councils, but that DCUSU had never before actually communicated that they were dissatisfied with any element of the USI until now, basically. Yeah, so I think the the major push here, um, you know, to reconsider this referendum was from the students themselves and was from societies. I think the LGBTA society definitely pushed on their Facebook and um, <coughs> how unhappy they were um, with with this yeah. referendum going ahead. Um, you know, they outlined that they've received a lot of support um, from the USI, really, um, and then FEMSOC as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of, I think, the in these kind of situations, it, it's the minority kind of groups in society that you know, do get do get a lot out of being yeah, a part absolutely. of these these kind of communities and feel like there's something backing them up if you know they go to their students' union about something. And I mean, I- if this goes ahead, um, if you go to DCUSU about something and you're dissatisfied with the help you receive or whatever you receive, uh, that's the end of your call. Yeah. Whereas when the USI, um, you th- when the university is a part of the USI, you have that next that next kind of step and higher authority almost over DCUSU and it just kind of unites all the SUs across the country it's much easier to organise like campaigns and protests and stuff when you're all operating under one kind of body and you can have your smaller groups within that I think think if, if, if this referendum goes ahead um, the current SU need to really explain where the money is going because Definitely. I suppose the biggest factor behind this is that you know they're dissatisfied with what they're getting from the USI and it does cost money to be a yeah. part of the USI um, but I mean that doesn't nec- that, that doesn't mean at all that students you know it's still going to cost the same uh, like next year's fees will still be the same as yeah. this year whether we're in the USI or not so I mean they would need to you know have a really good reason for where this money would go and how that would and be very clear about where they're allocating it to one particularly interesting part of it though is that DCUSU are claiming that they would like to disaffiliate from the USI because they do not feel they're receiving the amount of support that would kind of correlate with the amount of money that we are paying mm. to be part of it. But if we look ba- if we go back to the whole idea of the minority groups benefiting from it, Sheena Cahill said in an article with the College View that DCU have had a lot of influence over the USI pol- policies in the last number of years. One of the things that the USI introduced was a part-time officer for postgraduates who are often a forgotten group Mm -hmm. in the college kind of system. But with colleges disaffiliating from the USI, obviously they're receiving less funding. And so their ability to help and target these minority groups to give them the supports that they need becomes less and less. So already we have UCD no longer a part of the USI, the same with UL. If it goes through for DCU, that's a lot of funding that our national student body is losing. And so that's a lot more students that are going to continue to be forgotten. Yeah, 
definitely. Well, um, we are going to be discussing more on um, that referendum, uh, which may or may not be going ahead, and the three referendums uh, that are going ahead next Monday on our referendum special. Um, Anya, what is the next story? Well, a Nubar couch has been abducted in plain sight, <laughs> um, the College View reported last week, and an offer of a €100 Euro bar tab, which it may also be increased, has been offered to entice whoever this thief is to bring back the missing sofa to Nubar. So it's quite a funny story, really. I mean, I can't really and do fathom... We know, do we know, um, like... How was the couch stolen? Like, I don't understand what happened there. Well, um, it was said that the couch was left at the top of the venue, which is a big kind of room for shows and... Stage, really. It's a stage, really, yeah, that we have here in DCU in the U. And it was left there, and someone apparently took it, and it was only noticed to be missing on Wednesday... Um, after the previous shite night, which was held on Tuesday. And the last time it was officially seen was last Friday, so... It, oh, wow, been, where was it seen? Then? Yeah, it, it was seen at the venue there. Um, oh, okay. And then it was officially realised that it was actually missing on the Wednesday, Wednesday. After, after shite night. Well, that makes a bit more sense. I mean, it sounded like a crazy, interesting article um, if it had just literally been taken out of the bar while it was in the bar. Yeah, that's what I initially kind of thought that had happened. But um, no, it seemed to have been outside because a lot of the furniture does get moved around for um, every Tuesday night. So I yeah. wonder, was that... Well, obviously, it's a bit of a you know marketing stunt from <laughs> Newbar to say, you know, um, whoever stole the couch, if you bring it back, we'll give you a 100 euro bar top. Mm. But I think they are taking inspiration from that, from other clubs that have done things like that yeah. before. Like, I know Carbon in Galway, um, it was, like, all over Facebook a few Christmases ago. Um, people stole, like, a big floor mat. Oh, really? Like a big rug. <laughs> um, and they said, if you can get it in, um, pass the bouncers without them notice, and we'll give you a hundred... I don't know how much it was, but we'll mm. give you a bar tab anyway. And uh, they went out on 12 pubs, and they dressed up as, um, like, Santa. I don't know what they dressed up as, and the, the mat was, like... Oh. <laughs> It was up in the costume. But yeah, that's just um, a nice, lighthearted story that's mm-hmm. been kind of going around DCU um, DCU the past few days. So yeah, that's all from our DCU news. So we're going to take a quick break now, uh, but make sure to st- stay tuned in for the latest in the national press. British Prime Minister Theresa May has admitted she will not get a new Brexit proposal in time for MPs to hold a meaningful vote this week. She has delayed the vote until March 12th, 17 days before Britain is due to leave the EU on March 29th. However, she has stated that an extension extension will only delay the decision making. Do you think a decision is about to happen? Are they going to give an extension for the Brexit proposal deal? What is likely to happen now for Britain? Are we going to crash out of the EU? Well, it seems that the likelihood of an extension is growing more and more likely as they reach the deadline of the 29th of March. So it seems like they don't really have any other options at the moment. Yeah, I was under the impression, and I think from all media, you know, 
we were saying there a few weeks ago, you know, this is it, it needs to be finalised, it needs to be decided, decided, but then everyone shortly realised, oh wait, no, an extension is possible. Mm -hmm. And I mean, an extension is in the best interest in, of, in everyone, even, you know, people who wanted to remain aren't happy with the deal and people who, you know, chose to leave aren't happy either. Um, however, Theresa May is saying that an extension, she doesn't want an extension. So I mean, what is, what is, like, what can be done? Reports coming from Brussels only last night are supporting the idea that a long extension will be granted to the UK that would possibly delay the UK's departure until 2021. Now, this would give a huge extension in terms of a proposed agreement, but it has been ongoing for a long time now. Definitely, Theresa May is unlikely to hang around until 2021 to see through the to see through that negotiation. Mm -hmm. See, I if they extend it until 2021, um, I mean. I can't remember what report was out, but it said that by 2022, if they were to do another referendum, the outcome would be completely different just from the sheer volume of people who have now turned 18. Some people um, who were 16 two years ago are now 18 be able to vote. People who, you know, older generations who would have voted to leave um, may no longer be around. And I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's unconstitutional to have another referendum because, you know, that's like flipping a coin and you getting heads and then being like, oh, do it again, you know. Um, but it's the the deal hasn't like when when the pe people of the UK voted for Brexit, they weren't given an outline of what they were actually voting for. No, I don't think anyone really and truly understood what they were actually getting themselves into by going through this and I think the longer that they extend the process the more likely that people will be to look for a second referendum um, Labour leader um, Jeremy Corbyn has said that Miss May was putting the country at risk by recklessly running down the clock to force MPs to choose between her bad deal and a disastrous no deal that's a very strong statement to come out with absolutely but I mean, that is the reality. And no one wants her deal, as I said. People, like, this isn't even a case of, you know, Remainers being bitter. It, people who voted for Brexit aren't even happy with the deal. Um, Leo Varadkar has described it as a lose-lose scenario and has said that um, he has confidence that the UK will not crash out of the EU without a deal on the 29th of March because they will either have a deal or they will have an extension. So, I mean, the likelihood of them coming out with a deal by the 29th of March seems very unlikely at the moment in that time frame when they, when um, the MPs have already shut down Theresa May's first proposal for a deal, so. Look, I think that um, there will be an extension, but Theresa May is just saying this because she doesn't want people to think that, you know, maybe if she says now, yeah, there'll be an extension, you'll probably have those people being like, oh, well, you, you still have time, you know, and yeah. maybe However, she's just... the EU have said that while they can offer Britain assurances on the withdrawal deal, they will not provide something that changes its fundamental shape. 
So extending the deadline by a further two years to not alter anything other than to just reassure them that it's not a crash out of the EU, that they will have, that they will still be able to build and sustain an economy. If they're not gaining anything extra, the, the EU are holding very rigid and very firm that they're not going to cave to the EU, the EU have or that they're not going to cave to the UK. The UK appear to have lost all power in negotiations. Theresa May has not made any strides in months with the EU. She has 100% agreed a deal that for Ireland is fantastic. We have the, the reassurance of the backstop agreement, which was kind of very necessary for most people. But for her own country, she doesn't appear to have achieved a huge amount to reassure them in the past number of months. And if nothing is going to change, if the, U if the EU are saying, that is it, we're not altering the shape of this agreement, is it worth dragging it out for another two years? No, I think, in all honesty, another two years would be would be dreadful just for <laughs> people having to listen to it every <coughs> single day. I know. Be on the news every single day. Um, I think people are already sick of listening to it. Sick of it, and like as I said before, in another two years' time, that group that voted to leave aren't the same anymore. I mean. Yeah, it's a complete figures, change in demographic. Yeah, from figures have shown that it was older generations and um, mostly that voted to leave. And I mean, if you think about it, people who were nearly seven, like who couldn't vote because they were seventeen, nearly eighteen, will be twenty two in twenty twenty one. I mean, they'll have four years to have been able to vote, and you know they they won't be able to vote on something that you know they're living in the present and will be their future. Um, but then I mean again Theresa May probably can't win because you know you have a lot of people saying that the reason why she isn't getting a good deal um, is because she was a Remainer so I mean I don't know what truth Either there is way, in that she does, have, she does have to provide the best possible outcome for her country and by not extending article 50 by coming out with some sort of deal by not allowing the UK to crash out of the EU she does appear to be doing the best job that mm -hmm. is possible in her situation at this moment in time. Yeah, so um, I think we will conclude at that, but um, it's definitely not the end for um, <laughs> Brexit talks on uh, Newswire talks. <laughs> um, so our next article um, that we just wanted to have a very brief discussion on, um, I saw this on the Irish Times today and just thought it was really interesting. Um, it was... Um, an opinion piece uh, written by Carl O'Brien and the headline is student literacy levels it is almost if they are word blind um, so yeah it was just an interesting piece kind of you know he he is an associate professor here in DC's school of biotechnology and um, sorry lecturer Greg Foley this is the article's like by uh, Carl O'Brien, but um, featuring in it is Greg Foley, and he is a lecturer here in DCU of uh, biotechnology. And he basically just kind of was saying that, you know, some of the stuff he's seen is the worst graded, and that's even from good students. So, I mean, what, like, there is a huge issue um, with, you know, kind of how big technology has gotten um, with spelling, with grammar, with just um, people writing overall. Like, have you witnessed kind of I suppose 
just illiteracy nearly in people who are in otherwise very, very well educated. But one of the most prominent issues with it is that they are not technically illiterate, they are functionally illiterate. So this could be That's something word, as thank you. So this could be something as simple as you're asked for an assignment to produce a graph and your graph isn't labelled or the axes are not correctly numbered, you don't have a proper scale. It's a lot of small things. It might be putting in a comma where there should be a full stop. It's not that the students throughout third level institutes in the country cannot read and write, but it's almost as if text speak has come into their academic writing. And so we've become lazy. I think it's also interesting to note how many people rely on um, autocorrect for the way that they actually spell things. 100%. And you know, it's you type out a few a few letters of a word that you're trying to spell and then the whole thing's there. So you don't even have to think about how do I spell this word. You know, you don't have to go back to junior infants when you were first learning how to to actually spell half the words that you're using every day. Well, like, because I, I think there are two sides to this argument. I mean, I feel like children are being more and more exposed to um, actual words and stuff because if they are using technology where they have to type in something to look up a video or if they have to, mm. I don't know, they are being exposed to language, to more, you know, just words in general. Um, however, I suppose autocorrect is is an issue because we really do rely on it. Um, because I always had the argument um, with my parents in the past few years that, um, you know, we don't use text speak anymore. Mm -hmm. However, that's actually probably even worse because, as you said, autocorrect is yeah. is such a big part of our, of our everyday lives. <laughs> it also means that while we have graduates who are getting degrees in really high-skilled jobs, our lower-level skills are extremely poor. And once a student goes into the workplace, it's no longer acceptable because it's seen as clumsy. It's A lot of it is basic, is very basic skills. Something like put, not using a full stop would not be tolerated in the workplace because if you were to produce any sort of manuscript, these are the things that are noticed straight away. Yeah, no, it's 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 very messy. And if you ever find yourself in any kind of situation, um, the way you write and the way you portray yourself um, through a letter is incredibly important. I mean, um, if you ever find yourself in trouble, like in prison or anything like that, you know, if I mean prisoners have said this before, if you are able to write, you know, your outline of what you'll do afterwards and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. You'll save yourself. I mean, that's a very obscure example. Um, example there, but you know what I mean. And Eve was right. I mean, see, like m more things, <laughs> more people do than go to prison. Is like CV writing, email mm -hmm. writing, and um, yeah, if you're working in any kind of workplace, you're gonna be writing. You're gonna be writing emails, and yeah. it's just not tolerable to miss a full stop in an email or not use capital letters. Um, something which seems to be really trendy is not using capital yeah. letters online and I don't understand it in a lot of things one Gmail is one of possibly the only kind of um, messaging services on the internet that does not use any form of autocorrect mm -hmm. so 
in anything else where you're typing, if you type the letter I on its own, it will automatically yeah. change to an uppercase letter. That won't happen in Gmail. And that's where a lot of your kind of professional contact is happening. So I think that's definitely one, maybe explains some part of it. Yeah, um, the article that we're discussing today is taken from an OECD study that was conducted and that was published last week. And another part that is discussed in it is that only 19% of university graduates in Ireland reach higher levels of numeracy, which is considered to be an important benchmark for innovation and building a strong economy. So I think we have a huge kind of engineering sector in the country yeah. at the moment. It's extremely common. But if we're struggling in one of the most basic aspects of that, what will happen to our engineering graduates? Where will they go to? Will will we actually be able to build that economy here in Ireland at all? Or are we going to have to kind of resort back to taking in immigrants to take over these jobs if our own graduates are not actually educated in the most basic parts of it? Well, I wonder what is the issue there? Um, I mean, you constantly hear of students saying that they struggle with numeracy and, you know, even really like intelligent students will you know joke about their lack of you know knowledge in that area and I mean it seems to be because it's something that isn't isn't really practiced every day I mean everyone has to write everyone has mm -hmm. to that kind of thing but numeracy skills can easily be um forgotten um and is that is that I mean it must be a problem with our education system surely well in comparison the numeracy levels in Finland are 37% and in the Netherlands, 35%. Now, we have... Sorry, what was Ireland again? 20? Was Ireland it? was 19. 19. So we have a higher level of higher education graduates than both of these countries, but it's not necessarily serving our economy or our society. We have these graduates who are unskilled, now, the report does state that more research needs to be done into the areas that students in Ireland are having difficulties in learning and developing, but it's definitely, it's definitely a problem that needs to be addressed, and sooner rather than later, because as our economy starts to take off again, if our graduates are not skilled enough to take on these jobs, then we do resort back to needing to take in immigrants from other countries to do jobs that we really should be able to do ourselves. And we are very much in danger of getting back into an economic crisis very quickly if that is the way it continues. I think it's very interesting in this article, though, they mentioned that the Irish third level um, institutions are almost like a one-size-fits-all system, so that so many people who are academically unprepared are actually being accepted into courses that just don't suit them and they're not going to come out with the best outcome from it. So that that seems to be a fault of the, the education system as a whole from primary school to secondary school in particular with the whole CAO process and everything and then it just it doesn't seem to be working. And it definitely is reflective in the number of dropouts and in mm -hmm. people failing in their third level college degrees. Absolutely. So it's I kind of insane as well to have, you know, a third level uh, like education system where there are no sort of entry exams or interviews. And um, what I mean by entry exams is I know obviously we have the leaving cert, but 
that doesn't cater to an individual course. Yeah. I mean, when you went into secondary school, all, most secondary schools just have entry exams just to know where you're at or whatever. Whereas the Leaving Cert doesn't really tell that much about you. Yes, you, you need to get a certain amount of points um, to be able to do a course, but that's not even what the system is. The system is just on popularity. Yeah. I mean, if only 10 people apply for a course and there's 20 spaces and one person in that gets 200 points, that will be the points, you know? Um, so perhaps we should look at, you know, the UK system and the US system where, you know, there are interviews and application forms and, you know, it's crazy that someone could get, say, for example, a course is 450 points and they get four, four, five, five points below that and don't get the course, whereas someone else who doesn't suit it could have gotten... Yeah could have gotten a bit more but um anyway uh we're going to end the discussion on that if anyone is interested in reading it um that was in today's um today's edition of the irish times online and um it was written by carl o'brien so the next article we're going to talk about is the urgent action that's needed to tackle the new hiv crisis and the number of diagnoses in um, 2018 have actually reached an all-time high in Ireland. So, this article to me, um, this was also in um, the Irish Times today, um, was quite surprising. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd heard t- a few talks about it over the past week, but I didn't realise the 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 really high numbers that we do have compared to we actually have double the European average. Um, and there are there were 531 new HIV diagnoses in 2018. Um, I suppose my surprise with this was, you know, we always think of kind of HIV and AIDS. You know, oh, that was a problem, you know, in the 80s, in the 80s, and the 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is, it is really sad to hear. Absolutely, and it, it there really isn't excuses in a modern world for people to not be kind of educated on the dangers of HIV because it's it's a re- I can't see how any kind of government or education system can kind of allow this to happen even well I would wonder you know and and this was raised this was raised in the article and I mean it's been hugely talked about um all over the press and the media for especially the past year about Ireland's sex education system mm-hmm. and it is just not up to par with the rest of the rest of the world really yeah. we are incredibly behind and I mean what do you think about just not even the, the education system but the way sex is talked about in Ireland as a whole well a HIV Ireland report in 2017 flagged that people in the 18 to 34 age group had higher levels of misinformation than any other age group. Um, The age group are most likely to believe that HIV can be passed to another person through a blood transfusion, um, kissing someone or sharing a toilet seat. So I have actually heard people thinking that as well. So sex education is rarely addressed in Ireland. It's a subject that may or may not be taught depending on what school you're in, how interested the teacher is. In some schools there's worksheets handed out and they're left up at the top of the room and that's that. If someone comes in to inspect there's something there 
and whether or not it's been thought is not a priority. It's very much fulfilling the criteria for inspection rather than educating the people in the classroom. Yeah, I think um, I think definitely the younger generation, even though um, maybe not so as 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 you said there that the eighteen to thirty four group are the most misinformed. Perhaps that because that's because we didn't grow up when you know you know HIV would have been really widely talked about talked about in the late eighties. Um, however, I did think that you know our generation was the best for you know talking about sex compared to older generations. I feel like we would be more open, and you know we would you know we wouldn't label and and that kind of thing. Um, that not, that isn't necessarily the issue though. People our age may be talking about it, but if the information hasn't been given to us in the first place, then until somebody contracts the virus and can start to speak to their peers about it, then that information isn't present in the first place. Yeah, that's true. Um, one thing that I thought was extremely interesting in the article, though, is that there is a preventative medication for HIV known as PREP, which, taken daily, reduces a person's risk of contracting HIV by more than 99% and is at least as effective as condoms at preventing HIV. However, this medication isn't cur currently available in Ireland. And sorry, is that taken before? Like, or is this a one-off? No, what it is a preventative medication. Okay. So it's, ta it's taken as a daily kind of supplement for a person that has not contracted HIV. Okay. But I suppose maybe someone in a homosexual relationship might decide to use this as a form of prevention. Yeah. I wonder would if that came in would people take it though? People it's take the pill as a form of contraception. That's true and that's every and day as well. By, yeah. by and large like people who are engaging in sexual intercourse will use a condom as a barrier for STDs. When you go to the doctor you're told that a condom is the only way of preventing them, that it is the only successful barrier <coughs> method. Yeah, and that's not necessarily true. Yeah. And why is it that this preventative medication isn't available, available in Ireland at the moment? Um, the HSE and HICWA are currently in a process to try and make the medication available. However, that process has not gone through all of the steps that are necessary yet. Um, but campaigners against HIV and to, who are lobbying the government to take stronger action say that the process has already taken too long as new diagnosis numbers are reaching alarming, alarming numbers and that they think more urgent action needs to be taken than something that is merely just a preventative. Mm. Yeah, we are going to take a really quick ad break now, uh, but up after secondary schools are experiencing staff shortages, so shortages and do Metrolink plans need to go coexist with Dublin communities? So here in DCU and I think all across the country, um, we're always talking about housing, we're always talking about the lack of housing, um, especially for students. I mean, there's a lack of housing for everyone, but you know, students are especially kind of taken advantage of um, because, you know, obviously students don't have as much money and, um, you know, accommodation is just, even the student accommodation is really taken advantage of. 
Um, so one story that was actually out in the College View this week about accommodation um, was that um, the college residences here in DCU were charging, um, well, it was going to be starting this academic year, 2019 2020, they're going to charge students 50 euro um, just to apply, just to, just to make an application. And even if they didn't get a place, um, they wouldn't get it back. However, after the article came out, um, they took this away, didn't they? Yeah, they since announced that if you don't get offered a place, you will be refunded the €50. Euro. But if you accept a place and then you decide that you don't want to stay there anymore for whatever reason you may have, um, they keep the €50 euro in that case because they have put the room aside for you. Okay. So yeah. if you okay. were planning on staying there anyways... It doesn't seem to be the worst thing in the world, but um, in the midst of a housing crisis, it didn't really seem like the the most appropriate thing that DCU could have done. Yeah, definitely. But um, kind of just you know on the same lines, housing crisis and all that. Um, the USI Today, um, an article has came out on the Irish Times that um, just they're condemning the delay um, to the tenancies legislation. Um, so Aoife, do you just want to explain a little bit, you know, what is this legislation that they want to come through and do we know, like, the re like, has there been any progress reports, do we know when we're going to see a change in tenancies and the legislation around students um, getting accommodation, I suppose? Okay, so currently students who are living in purpose-built student accommodation are deemed licensees so they're not tenants, which means they have fewer rights than what would be granted to a tenant. So last year, rent pressure zone legislation came in, which caps rent increases at 4% per year. That, however, does not currently apply to student accommodation because students in purpose-built accommodation are regarded as licensees. So the USI are pushing for this legislation to be changed. They believe that students in this purpose-built accommodation deserve to be regarded as tenants. That was originally due to go through in April. However, there has been little or nothing done about it since. It was kind of put out there as an idea and then shoved to the wayside. So the USI are just kind of lobbying for this now again to try and get that push to bring it over the line because if it does not go through before summer, that means that we will be into the following academic year before anything can be done about it. So students who are applying for student accommodation for the following, for the coming academic year, which will be 2019-2020, will face the same problems that are being faced by students this year and in years previous. So currently we have a student population of 18,000 and that, that is currently in, in UIG alone. So the amount of houses that are short in the country is due to increase up to, I think the article said 26,000 this year from 23. So as the further this legislation gets pushed out, the worse the housing crisis will continue because each year more and more students are going to third level. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 
it really is crazy that you know just because it's not it it's not a privately owned say privately owned accommodation that students aren't considered tenants like definitely yeah, they're still paying the rent just like everyone else and in is. most cases it's um it's more it's it's a lot more expensive um look that is unfortunately all we have time for today we kind of got a bit of a, a bit of ahead of ourselves so um we didn't actually get to talk about the uh, two last stories that we said we were going to before the break uh, but don't worry um, we will have a lot more for you on Thursday so thank you all for tuning in to today's edition of Newswire Talks I'm Kira O'Loughlin I'm Aoife O'Brien and I'm Anya Boyle. remember you can keep up to date with us on Instagram and Twitter at DCU MPS News also make sure to tune in to our SU election special this Thursday at 5pm and on Thursday from 12 to 2 p.m. we'll be live streaming the Q&A event on the in the U. Thanks guys, see you then. DCU Students for Sensible Drug Policy has launched a petition to hold a referendum in the university on the decriminalisation of drugs. The question they wish to be posed to students is, DCUSU shall actively support and campaign for the decriminalisation of the possession of drugs for personal consumption for adults age 18 and over in Ireland. To discuss this, I am joined today by Declan Moore, Chair for the DCU SSDP Society. So Declan, firstly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, so do you mind just explaining to our listeners what de- drug decriminalisation means? So effectively um, what happens when a country or a group take a, a stance of decriminalisation, um, basically they're, they're acknowledging that drugs um, are still illegal to possess and consume, but that we're taking the, the criminal pen- penalties away for uh, committing those those. Uh, crimes essentially so you're not um, dealing with it through the justice system but you're dealing with it as a civil issue and um, how we would uh, propose that be done is, is through the health service essentially so you're, you're effectively dr- dealing with drug use and drug possession as a health issue as opposed to a criminal justice issue. Okay so it's very different to you I think from myself from speaking to some people they think that it means legalisation which no, it, absolutely it doesn't. No absolutely not. 
Um, so why do you think this model should be introduced in Ireland? I mean, um, we're seeing all over the world at the moment there are uh, campaigns uh, pushing for decriminalisation. Um, we've seen the benefits of it. Um, there's currently uh, 25 states around the world that have introduced decriminalisation over the past 20 or so years. Um, the most popular or well-known of those would be the Portuguese model, which seems to be um, the most extreme of all the models of decriminalisation. Um, effectively, what, what they did was they defined amounts um, of, of uh, they defined personal consumption amounts of most illicit substances. So, I think it was uh, five grams for um, herbal cannabis um, and uh, one gram for heroin, things like that. So, effectively, if somebody was caught with the, with this amount or under, they would be dealt with um, through either issuing a fine or on repeat offences by forwarding them through a dissuasion committee which would be led by health services so they'd be offered uh, drug counselling um, and other services in, in, in the hopes that they would be able to engage with these services um, if they needed help in, in order to um, you know, come off drugs or, or what have you. So. And I suppose one of the kind of downsides people were saying you know, against decriminalising drugs is that maybe you know dealers could get around it somehow by maybe having you know more people and then giving them kind of small amounts of drugs so if they were caught they wouldn't be jailed do you think that happens or what would you say about that um i mean i don't really think that that doesn't effectively happen already um that okay. when somebody goes out that they're already going out with the amount they intend to to sell, I, I don't really think that that uh, does away with the fact that that drug users are still being criminalised. We've decided that that people who use drugs should receive criminal sanctions, uh, whether that's time in prison um, or you know a, a criminal record as a result of, of just using drugs, which many people have established you know is an, a byproduct of trauma. Um, you know, there isn't necessarily always a choice to, to using drugs like there is with committing violent crime or uh, distribution of, of, of narcotics. So uh, that's kind of where, where the argument for decriminalization is, is, is aiming for. So it's kind of just wanting to see it, wanting to see it as um, a healthcare issue as opposed to going through the justice system. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And do you think this model will be introduced in Ireland anytime soon? Like, what is the current kind of talks around it? Um, at the moment, um, there's, uh, there was a working group um, taking place through uh, Junior Minister Catherine Byrne's office. Um, we're to receive the outcome of that report now in the, in the next uh, month or two. Um, and that's been in progress, as far as I'm aware, since June. Um, and they were basically si similar to the Citizens' Assembly looking at um, the feasibility and validity of, of um, discussing such policies in Ireland. Um, now, there, there have been sort of informal uh, outcomes of this document made available. Um, I haven't had the chance to read through them entirely, and I'm kind of holding out to see what the, the final verdict of this working group are. But definitely, um, if you look at, at um, groups like Anna Liffey Drugs Project or Citywide, uh, both on, on their websites um, outline extensively the why decriminalisation um, 
would be feasible in Ireland and it's it's the perfect time for Ireland to to sort of lead the charge on this um, and LFE maintained that by 2022 they're they're quite confident that we'd, we would have some form of decriminalization policy uh, drug policy uh, in in practice um, so no I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility for sure Great. and you kind of talked about earlier how Portugal has the most what would you say is there uh, mo- the most radical application of decriminalization I suppose <laughs> yeah like you said it better than I have what other countries have some some forms of decriminalization then just bear with me there um so I mean from if if you look at citywide have actually done a case study themselves here so other European company countries that have effectively some form of model of decriminalization implemented um, would be Belgium Croatia, the Czech Republic, Germany, Italy, and th- these policies kind of kind of vary massively. They can be on a local level. They can be true, like law enforcement's own policies on how they deal with low-level street dealing or uh, finding dr- uh, people using drugs on the streets and, and choosing to just confiscate rather than to to press charges against somebody. Um, so, I mean, on on individual cases. Uh, people should definitely sort of look up these individual countries but um, the Portuguese model is essentially across the entire country Um, and I think that stemmed from um, where Portugal were in the late 90s in relation to their own heroin epidemic Um, they had the the highest number of uh, heroin users in Europe at the time with 1% of their population using heroin and it, 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 it sort of uh, impacted across all classes of society at the time like it was very widespread um, they had the highest drug overdose debt uh, we, there aren't uh, perfect figures on, on, on it for the 90s but estimates are around 360 um, overdose deaths per year in Portugal in the late 90s um, now that figure in 2016 came went, went all the way down to 27 um, and it was 40 the previous year so clearly we can see that you know there's been a, a huge reduction in in just the the, the overdose deaths that's that's yeah. the first one the the number of people who are alive today that might not have been had this policy not been enacted um, the other side of things is, as well is um, that the um, the rate of heroin use has dropped to um, by 75%, so there's 25,000 heroin users in Portugal now. Um, there, just, 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 uh, just a point on that. Portugal have a population that's approximately twice the size of Ireland. Just, just for comparison's sake, um, at the moment Ireland's uh, overdose rate is is the third or fourth highest in Europe over the last couple of years. Um, you know, we're we're more people died of an overdose in Ireland last year than died on our roads. So we're at a, a, a pretty crisis point here in terms of dealing with this, and we can see that a, a, a neighbour of ours uh, effectively enacted a, a, a decriminalisation policy back in 2001, and I think we need something similar here now. And why do you think decriminalising? I mean, Portugal has shown that it has you know, dropped the number in overdose deaths. Do you think the number of drug users has dropped or just the number of people overdosing? 
Uh, absolutely, the, the, both, both. So there was a 75% reduction in the amount of drug users. So they had approximately oh, 100,000 drug users in um, the year 1999, that might be 98, um, and it's down now at around... 25 to 30,000. So, you know, it's, it's, it's seen a huge reduction. Now, those figures from today are actually from 2016. Uh, they're about two years time delayed on that. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, another, the, the reason I think that, that we see such, a, such, a, such positive outcomes from decriminalization is essentially that uh, it's just another form of harm reduction, really, and it, it encourages people who would be stigmatized and ostracized from their, their communities to be able to partake in, in, in services when they feel ready to. Um, and it, it really increases the chances that somebody is actually able to, to turn things around for themselves, you know, and, and that's, that's clear as day, really, from, from what's happened in Portugal. Um, uh, what's really important to stress here, though, is is that simply decriminalize, simply decriminalizing isn't isn't enough. It it is, it is not just a case of tomorrow morning we wake up and you can, you know, walk the streets of Dublin with a certain proportion of illicit substances and you won't get a criminal record. You, you need to reallocate the funds into the health service in order to deal with the issue itself. You know, so. Other, otherwise, you you know we'll we'll be right back to to where we are now, very shortly if if we don't actually deal with the the capital expenditure uh, correctly. Brilliant. And so, what is the next step for the SSD, the DCU SSDP? So um, we've collected signatures and we've submitted them to the students' union in order to petition for a referendum to be held for. Um, basically the college to take a stance um, in support of decriminalization for personal use and um, we're hoping that that will um, take place around the same time as the SU elections um, so we'll hopefully get some information about um, campaigning for that for that um, in the next couple of weeks and um, really we're, we're running this campaign in line with um, similar ones that uh, Anna Liffey, in conjunction with the London School of Economics and Hot Press, are running at the moment. Um, we're using Citywide as, as a source of information and language for how we structure our campaign. And we also intend to um, to ask the, the um, nominees for SU elections about their stance and, and just get the students talking about the issue because it is um, certainly an issue that they, it, it essentially affects any anyone who knows somebody who uses drugs and it, it, it caters to humanizing those people whether they be somebody who's on campus or somebody who is in the depths of drug dependence who has you know alienated themselves from the rest of society um, so essentially that's that's what we've got going on and do you think the interest is there of students in DCU are are most students aware of the situation or um, I was very pleasantly surprised at um, how positively received we were when we were out collecting signatures for this campaign. Um, we managed to collect our entire quota, nearly 500 signatures in, in, in a single day walking the campus. Um, and overall, I, I, I think one or two percent of students that we approached um, ultimately 
were not interested in, in, in signing. So, I mean, everyone else, you know, so, some people had their reservations and we, we discussed uh, the notion of, of um, defining decriminalization and how it differs from legalization entirely um, and how we're trying to approach this from an evidence-based and health-led approach um, se seeks to humanize and show compassion to other people, you know. For joining us brilliant, today, brilliant. Thanks uh, very much. We're going to take a quick ad break now, but make sure to stay tuned to the latest ECU news. This is Clara Coslin reporting for Newswire. A new period emoji has been included in the February 2019 emoji release. The emoji is a blood drop and was the runner up design in a public vote by Plan International. Back in 2017, Plan ran a survey in the UK and discovered just how much shame and stigma still impact girls' and women's experiences of having their period. 54,600 people voted for their favourite of five designs, which included the winner, which was period pants, and they submit that to the Unicode Consortium, but the design wasn't accepted. Plan then teamed up with NHS Blood and Transplant and submit the runner-up blood drop, which is now the new emoji. I spoke to Neve Dunn, of Vemsock in DCU about her thoughts on the new blood drop emoji. In modern society now it's still considered a taboo subject so at least like a, a period emoji can just say it all so I feel it's definitely a step in the right direction in normalising the conversation anyway. I think it's seen as a dirty thing from years ago I don't know understand why it's a normal bodily function that half the world's population goes through and it's just seen as a hush hush thing and but I think now especially in the last year or so it's become more open a lot of more female focused publications have talked about it like her.ie seller image publications so I do think it's becoming a lot more uh, normalized in society but the taboo was just that it was a dirty thing and that obviously women were meant to be seen as pristine and feminine and anything like that is obviously counteracts that I do think the emoji is just kind of has come because of a lot of publications and media that have been, as well as public figures, trying to kind of propel and push forward that um, periods are a normal thing. And I think the emoji just kind of enhances the work that's already been done. I think it will start to normalise it um, in the sense that girls will feel more open to talking about it. And hopefully it will encourage not just girls but boys to talk about it, say if a girl needs to talk about it with her boyfriend or something like that. So just hopefully make it a bit more normalised and easier to talk about because... As they say, a, a picture paints a thousand words. So that's hopefully what it will do then. There was a study in Plan International Ireland that it was over 50% of young girls were ashamed of talking about their periods when it's such a normal thing. And even if you don't just look at it in Ireland, if you look at it at a global scale, especially in developing countries, it's even more taboo there, where you're no longer a young girl, you're now a woman, so you have to leave school. Though I do think women are still shamed into it. It's obviously getting a lot better now, don't get me wrong. Especially there's article series, articles from journalists such as Ro McDermott or Jade Hayde who are trying to talk about periods on an open platform, but it is still, still a while to get there. But while it might be better in Ireland, if you look at it on a global scale, there's still a lot to be done. Mary Ryan, a final-year journalism student, also gave her opinion about the new blood drop emoji. I don't love it or hate it. I think that there is going to be lots of benefits to it, kind of the normalisation of talking about periods and vaginas in public in a way that's not making fun of them or that doesn't send, you know, scores of children into, like, fits of giggles. At the same time, I also think it's pretty useless because if this is Apple taking a stand and saying we're so for feminism and, and women's issues, they'd maybe want to start in their own workroom enacting gender pay, having a serious 
sexual assault policy in place to protect their predominantly female staff members who were coming forward with accusations and stuff, uh, and having a, a sort of a, a stronger equal workplace relationship there. I think this is a very small step towards you know a, a larger solution, uh, but I think bigger steps need to be taken, especially by such a large company that's billion dollar industry in itself at the moment. I think they wanted to go very non-offensive with it. I think again it's a very small showy step showy not as in they're you know showing that they actually really give a a crap about kind of general issues regarding normalization of of period culture and stuff but uh, showy as in it's kind of a look guys we do actually care about women step so i'm I'm not really surprised in that and uh, i think it could have probably been done better but i i don't think it would have been anyway so it's not really a, a huge shock to me Student learning support services are being underused or used too late, said Karina Curley, academic learning officer at DCU. She said that students often come for help after they have failed a module, but she would prefer to see them availing of the services earlier. I met with Karina at her office in the Henry Grattan building on the Glasnevin campus, and she told me about the services that the Student Support and Development Department offer. Our area offers academic support, so anything to do with study skills and learning at the university. We, that would be so that would include revision, exam success, getting started with your learning, so the whole um, area of study and um, exams. The department also offer workshops, some for attendance by anyone and some that are specific to a particular course. We run academic workshops, we run two kinds. We run um, general workshops that are usually advertised on the event page, and anybody can apply, go to those, they're open. And then we use in-class workshops. These would be when we are invited by a lecturer to come in as part of the module and deliver a workshop to the group. I asked Karina about the take-up of the general attendance workshops. Um, I'd say it's disappointing. Um, it's not as good as, uh, as we would like, and especially for the amount of work that goes into it. We are told repeatedly that I didn't know about the workshop or didn't, time didn't suit me. So what we've done this year is make screenshots of our workshop and screencasts, I should say, and they're available. So we've had like maybe 600 views now on our website on those screencasts, so that's really positive. And uh, we also um, have Discover DCU, and we put the content of our workshops online so students can access the information online as well. I spoke to students on the Glasnevin campus to find out about services that they had used or that they were aware of. I was very aware of the services. Um, They do great work in making sure, as a first year going in, that you know all of their help is available. Um, I never availed of it myself, purely because I was um, I felt comfortable enough with uh, with the learning and, and sort of education and services I had. But I, I think they are a great asset to people who weren't as lucky as me and who kind of need that extra bit of help. Uh, well, I've used the disability support services uh, for exam periods. So I'm in a room with other people away from my course for exams. Uh, which uh, lets me avail of, I think it's 10 minutes extra time per section because I have a wrist and shoulder problem. I had surgery on my shoulder. So I've, uh, I've, I've applied for that, but that's about it. No, I haven't. Mainly just because I never think to use them. Uh, being us, I wouldn't really know that they were they existed. And just during exam season and stuff like that, it'd be, I'd be too stressful and caught up in my work to even think of a service like that. A couple of years ago, I went to a couple of the Wednesday wellness and there was one of them about 
sleep and another another one was about um i think it was nutrition so i found them really informative when i was doing them well i've mainly used the disability services which from what i understand comes under the wider umbrella of student support and development um so i'm in my final year so i've been with the disability um, services since day one. Mainly when it comes down to things like um, I have a PA and I have my own adapted furniture and um, the main time that I come into contact with them in the year is exam time because I'm entitled to exam supports, extra time, rest periods and access to a laptop. However, I would say that I, I, I get all that but at the same time you still have to advocate and speak for yourself and remind them that you're still here and remind them that you're coming back every semester hasn't always been plain sailing but uh, for now at the moment uh, I'm very grateful for what I get. I also spoke to Susan Madigan an occupational therapist with the disability services and I asked her about the services that they offer students. The disability service offers um, a certain set of services to people who are eligible to register with us so someone who has um, uh, a diagnosis um, out of certain categories, things like people who are on the autism spectrum, people with um, hearing or visual difficulties, or people with dyslexia, things like that. So it's, it's a number of categories. We offer exam supports, so things like um, maybe being in a smaller room for those with anxiety, or even being in a room on their own if it's someone who might have something like Tourette's or epilepsy, where it's possible that they might um, become unwell during the exam and possibly disturb themselves or others. We also offer in-class support, so things like technology, software, um, uh, gadgets, <laughs> if that will help. And that's, again, to help with people who might miss some of the information during a class or um, need to listen back to things, things like that, where there might be attention difficulties or fatigue or stuff that's preventing people kind of getting all the information. And then there's occupational therapy support, so that's what I do. So that's working with any of our students who might be struggling, who want to improve their performance. So I work with lots of our students with mental health difficulties who, for one reason or another, might be struggling to get to class, might be struggling to get the information in class, like I mentioned, or just not feeling great, which impacts on their performance in college and their enjoyment of college. Um, what the Disability Service wants is for all of our students with disabilities to have as good an experience as everyone else. Karina said that when exam results come out is often the first time that students engage with their services. And she said that they would like the students to come and see them much earlier in the semester. As early as possible. Um, so we find that a lot of students come when they're actually stressed or upset. And a lot of time has passed and we're trying to make up for the weeks that have passed. So I would encourage any student who is finding it difficult, having any challenges, come early and get the help that they need to, to get off to a good start. They can go onto the student learning webpage and a link to our service is there. So you can book and you can click on to the student learning web ser um, service and make an appointment with myself or my colleague. DCFM Newswire. Get involved in the conversation on Facebook and on Twitter at DCFM News. Yesterday, a mural was placed outside the Henry Grattan in conjunction with DC's Kiss Week, which stands for Keep It Safe and Sexy. The week promotes awareness and guidance around sexual health and consent. The mural is part of a campaign by It Stops Now Europe, 
in conjunction with the Union of Students Ireland. It hopes to share how students can help end sexual harassment and violence on campus. The mural was made up of different signs saying things like it stops now, consent is sexy and mandatory and don't stand, speak up. Leona O'Callaghan, a survivor of sexual assault, has joined the Union of Students in Ireland in calling for an end to gender-based violence. She spoke about her experience at the group, which was chaired by TD Ruth Coppinger. On Monday, the USI, along with Unite the Union and ROSA, came together urging a series of protests and walkouts this International Women's Day to call for an end to the gender pay gap and for an end to gender-based violence. For those who don't know my history, my, my abuser was sentenced to 18 years last year after a lengthy legal battle for sexual crimes committed against me as a child in Ireland. Bias, blame and unfairness was at the heart of my experience. Despite support and media coverage around the Me Too movement, and this was not contentious process last year, only a matter of months ago I stood in an Irish court where my abuser's defence were permitted to indicate that I, as a child, had given a sign of consent due to not physically fighting back on those words on me. The judge was asked to take this as a mitigating factor. A, a child cannot consent. A thong cannot consent. We do not have sufficient legislation to adequately deal with the issues of consent. We remain participants in a victim blame in Ireland where the perpetrator has the right to legal representation but victims and survivors do not. We remain in a country where there is inadequate education in our church-led schools that fail us by not providing the knowledge and the guidance needed to put an end to victim blaming, to highlight what consent is and to teach men not to rape, not to teach women how not to be raped. The men of our country are not so weak that a piece of clothing would affect whether or not they are willing or capable of being a rapist. The judicial system that insinuate these indications fail and insult our men along with our women. Gender equity is not a women's issue. When we associate masculinity with power and money and muscles and aggression, we disclude the good men who are not representative of these traits. The lack of a moral compass in the legal, school, government and judicial system does not represent the morality of our country. And today we call for action and insist they catch up with the morals and what Irish people <coughs> Gender inequality shows up in our statistics of violence against women. It shows up in our lacks of rights and resources for these survivors. Instead of providing more resources, our government will cut their funding. Gender bias also shows up in our differences in pay based solely on our gender. It shows up in our definitions of leadership and strength and the image they raise compares to the definition of fragile and vulnerable and the gender associated with that. It shows up in our advice to our women not to go for a job alone in case you get raped and our guidance to our boys to be macho and never vulnerable. Gender inequality shows up all around us. What I ask from the general public is to support us by joining us on International Women's Day. I ask our TDs for strong political leadership in reinstating cuts to the frontline support services addressing violence against women like Ruth Coppinger has shown here today. I ask employers and trade unions to close the gap in gender pay differences and I ask employers and trade unions, sorry, and I ask the media to raise awareness of the much needed change. Let's stand together in solidarity to say that we have had enough 
We are making change one way or another. We as a country are better than this. We stand for integrity, morality and fairness. Let's lead the way to ensure that this is also reflected in how our country treats our women. Involved in the conversation on Facebook and on Twitter at DCFM News. Right now, I'm craving some pizza, but I'm craving you even more. Damn girl, are you a pizza? Because everyone wants a slice of you. You're like pizza. Even when you're bad, you're good. Domino's Pizza Fingless. All the cheese, no sleaze. Order on the phone, in-store, or even track your pizza from the oven to your door when you order online today. DCFM Newswire. And now it's time for the latest news in the past hour. The Lewis Red Line has reopened following the death of a woman who was struck by a Lewis tram this morning. Transport Minister Shane Ross turned the sod on the new runway at Dublin Airport today, yet some local residents remain unhappy and have claimed that the government ignored their concerns over noise levels. The police force in Northern Ireland has apologised profusely after it was discovered that a number of legacy documents relating to killings in the 1990s weren't given to Northern Ireland's police ombudsman. The former MMA fighter is leaving the octagon to enter the political ring as Sinn Féin candidate in the upcoming local elections. On a two-tier pay scale, the European Court of Justice has ruled that Ireland's two-tier pay system for teachers is not an act of age discrimination. Thanks so much for listening today. We will be live again at 6pm next Monday. Remember, you can always keep up to date with us on Instagram and Twitter at DCUMPS News. Thanks again. I'm Kira O'Loughlin on DCUFM coming to you live on this Thursday evening. I am your host, Colin McDonnell, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Greg Mulhall. How 